Glad to be here. Had a good, safe drive uh, coming out. We uh, This morning I want to talk about the process of Christian growth. And I have a text in mind, but I thought by starting out, when we think about growth in the Christian life, coming from an education background, coming from a, a scope and sequence, right? I'm used to how do you know that they're in third grade or fourth grade because so much of the church environment is a one-room schoolhouse type of environment. So how do you help people you know, progress to the next level. And and so when you, so I want to start with a question of when you think of the process of growth and understanding the growth in the Christian life, what biblical passages, what New Testament uh, concepts come to your mind when you think about spiritual growth? How to evaluate your own spiritual growth or the growth of others and Knowing that, you know, like when you go to the doctor with children, they put them in a percentile. Your height is in the 48th percentile of kids your age. And uh, you, their weight is in the 68th percentile. And so occasionally you'll get a, a child who's in the 5 percentile for height. Like, hey, that's kind of a flag. Like, whoa, they should be growing, you know. Or if they're in the 100th percentile for weight, you know. Hey, we probably need to curb something there. So when you think of the, the process of growth in the Christian life, and you think of how to evaluate that or measure that, or is there any particular passage that comes to your mind, or how would you kind of break that up or describe that? Any thoughts on that? I realize just impromptu question, but... He's explained how New York is. Well, this is how I am. I just dump it right in your lap, and you know, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Galatians five, where it lists the fruits of the Spirit. These are evidences that we should see of the Spirit of God working in our life and regeneration. Good. Anything else that... Yeah, Second uh, Peter 3.18. Well, that's where we're going to end up. So you, you get a gold star as, as we're going to end up in Second Peter. Okay, so... Teacher's pet over there, you know, you gotta gotta watch them. Yeah, absolutely. So any others that come to our mind? Yes, sir. Brian? Is it Brian, wasn't it? Bruce, sorry. Matt said Brian when he and so then I got Brian. Yeah, Bruce. Sorry, I probably should just point at you and not try to remember your name. But you know, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, the level of mortification, right, is a helpful. I was also thinking of Hebrews 5, 12. Remember where Paul or the author, whoever you see wrote Hebrews, said, when for the time you ought to be. For the amount of time that you've been a Christian, you ought to be. So there was an expectation of growth to be happening for the amount of time you ought to be a teacher, right? And not need to be taught the first principles of those things. Anyone else? Sir, Adam? Yeah. Right. Rooted, so not easily moved away, right, from the 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 foundation of Christ and this gospel and those things. Very good. Anything else? Turn if you would to the book of Second Peter, which is where Lord willing, today and next Sunday, I'll be spending uh, uh, most of our time together. Uh, my approach, I, one way I like to study the Scriptures is to take a New Testament book and kind of just dig into it and understand it. I, I use the language of take possession of it. That it's in my Bible already, but understanding it to the level so that if somebody refers to that book, I in my mind have, oh, I understand kind of the theme of that book and where it's going and what the message of it is, and being able to work in that book freely with understanding the context and being able to go read an individual verse and have a more understanding. And so uh, I intend to spend... Um, most of our time in that book, kind of looking at the whole book. And just by way of introduction, some of the, the context of Second Peter is in the, this is Peter's swan song. This is his, if you look in verse 12, uh, I will not be negligent to put you, uh, verse 13, I think it means as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly... I must put off this tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. He knew he was about to die. So this is his deathbed swan song letter that he writes of the things that were on his heart. And as he does that, the concern that he had was apostasy. Those that were departing from the faith. He devotes really all of chapter 2 to false teachers and warning them against them. But in chapter 1 of Second Peter, his approach to how to overcome apostasy is growth. That if you're growing to maturity and producing fruit, that is you know, the best defense is a good offense. As you're growing to maturity, as you mentioned, that helps you become rooted, as Adam mentioned, rooted and grounded and not easily moved away, not easily depart from. We live in a day where many are departing from the faith. Many evangelical leaders, national figures, are getting to the place that they're just outright denying Christianity. 
It's not that they're just going liberal. There's the, the drift of that, but they're absolutely denying the gospel and saying, you know, one of the popular ones wrote a book uh, early in his life, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and then recently is working on a book, I Kissed Christianity Goodbye. And you, you look at that and you're like, like, whoa. Like, and just an absolute departure. Imagine having a pastor who after 10, 15 years denies the gospel and says, I'm not even a Christian. And so Peter, in his own personal experience, sorry, I move around a lot, so. Peter, in his own personal experience, you remember Peter was humbled in this area. Right? After following the Lord Jesus Christ for three years, Jesus said to him, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And you remember Peter's response to that? Sorry, Charlie, you got the wrong guy. You are confused. Because if everybody in the world forsook you, it wouldn't be me. You just, you know, I realize you're the son of God and you don't make mistakes, but this one you just made a mistake because you don't understand who I am. And if everyone else forsook you, I would not be that guy. And you remember what Jesus said? This night, before the cock crow, you will deny that you even know me. Now, how many of you, if I said, before your alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, you're going to deny that you even know Christ, would think, <laughs> I don't know what you're smoking, but you're no way. And Peter was convinced that if anybody would not deny, that he would not. And he said, man, Peter, and he says, and when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And I take that from Luke 22, that as Peter writes First and Second Peter, he has that in mind. I denied knowing Christ. So it wasn't this theoretical concept that apostasy could happen. He had personally experienced what that was like. And so he writes knowing that he's leaving the scene. And he writes a letter saying, you need to have blood earnestness with this. This is a real thing. right? This is where we believe in the doctrine or the concept of eternal security. But eternal security can be used in a detrimental way. Because once saved, always saved. Right? I like to change that to say, if you're saved, you're always saved. The familiar verses in Second Peter are give diligence to what? Make that calling and election sure, certain. Not Diligence is not, well, once saved, always saved. And I remember a time 17 years ago when there, I had an emotional experience and then, I mean, so I'm saved. I mean, I've lived like the devil for the last 17 years since then. But once you're saved, you're always saved. And I don't know about you, but as you deal with people, I have a, a good friend of mine 
who on the trip out here, Matthew got a front row seat of, you know, pastoral. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me when I got off the phone like, well, that was harsh, <laughs> direct. But I'm dealing with a, a, a friend of mine who I've known for 20 years who is going through crisis. And he made a profession as a child and for 20 years of his married life has lived like he'd gone to church, but behind that lived an ungodly lifestyle. It, to the point that you would just blush. If I, I mean, a drug addict, uh, infidelity, just, and I'm just hammering and hammering, but, you know, he's clinging to that. And as a friend, I just, you know, Matthew got, I usually talk to him just in this, because he's in the midst of a marriage crisis, talk to him just about every day. And I just keep, anyway, that's. But the practicality of it is how do we get to that, what is diligence to make our calling election sure look like. In First Peter, Peter gives us what I think, and this is the reason I started where I did, a description of the growth process of a Christian. In, in first, or Second Peter chapter 1, look with me starting um, in verse 3. I use the King James, so I, I apologize in advance that that not be a... That's just what I've grown up on, so if I sound a little different, it's not, I'm not misreading. Uh, verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The regenerating power of God's Spirit has given a believer his divine power in everything we need that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And here's where I want to focus this morning. And besides this, besides all that God has done, giving all diligence... Right? Diligence is a virtue, is a character in our day that is in short supply. Uh, constant attention. Extreme effort. Diligence. Not negligence. Not sporadic. Constant attention to giving diligence to add to our faith. To strengthen to root, to ground, to bring to maturity our faith. And so he pleads that we give all diligence. He acknowledges the power of regeneration in verses 3 and 4. And we believe that justification is a monergism. It is a work of God's Spirit apart from us, right, to, to regenerate us. But sanctification is a synergism. If we, Romans 8, through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. God is working in us and there is a responsibility for us to give diligence to this. And so he says, he gives this list. Add, 
supply, strengthen to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He, his assurance of salvation is shaken because you haven't been diligent to add these things. Wherefore, given the choice of verse 8, that these things are in you and abound, or you lack these things, verse 9, wherefore the rather, given those two options, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, he said that three times, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what he's driving at, is that he wants them to come to a full assurance of faith. To overcome apostasy and assaults and the obstacles that happen. And so as we look at this process in verses 5 through 7. We see, I would propose to you, a growth process. And what I mean by that is, uh, Adam, I believe it was, mentioned the fruit of the Spirit. When it mentions the fruit of the Spirit, how does it give it to us? How does it give us that list? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, meekness, faith, temperance, right? And so it lists them. How does he list it, Peter, list it differently in verses 5 to 7? Anything stand out to you there as you read through those? Right. Building on each other. He doesn't just list them and say, hey, add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. He repeats himself and says, to faith, add this. Virtue, excellence, goodness. To virtue, add this. Knowledge. To knowledge, add temperance. To temperance, add patience. To patience, add, you see it? So he's giving us, this is why I call it the growth process. He's giving us where to start. 
where to go from. And so our understanding of these, like I said, I'm a little process-oriented, but that's why I'm asking the question. So you come to the conclusions, and it's not just me saying, hey, this is a process here. Is to understand them, and then do self-examination to say, okay, where am I at in this process? Where am I at in adding these things to my faith? And to not neglect them, but to be diligent to say, is this it? do I have this? Do I have this? And I believe, not perfectly, not exclusively, but there seems to be a clear repetition of that there's adding this block to this block to this block to this block to this block that is unlike any other list that we get in the scriptures of concepts. Does that make sense? And so taking spiritual growth and the full assurance of faith is what he emphasizes in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. The theme I would give of 2 Peter is overcoming apostasy. And in chapter 1, he focuses on assurance, being fully grounded, diligent in it, to give diligence to make your calling and election sure, so that you never fall. In chapter 2, it's an awareness of false teachers. Here's all the false teachers. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, and he said, chapter 2 is one of the most terrible chapters in all the Bible. Who could enjoy that? If you read his exposition of Second Peter, he he doesn't skip it. He's not advocating that. He just says, what a, what a terrible chapter about all these false teachers and all the bad things that are, you know. And so he kind of condenses it and moves through it pretty quickly and then focuses more on the first and third chapter. But, but when it comes to the concept of spiritual growth, that is something that we have to, this is part of taking responsibility for our faith and my personal growth, and that I'm diligent in it, and taking ownership of it, and not just laissez-faire. I love J.C. Ryle, and he said this, if the words of the Bible mean anything, there is such a thing as growth, and believers ought to be exhorted to grow. So when you think of spiritual growth, what list would you come up with? Not different from the scriptures, but just your understanding of what maturity, we talked about briefly, what does that look like? How would I measure my spiritual growth? Because your, uh, I don't know what word to call it, but how you view growth is how you're evaluating your growth, right? We have a rubric, right? When we Again, I think from an education perspective, a teacher has a syllabus and teaches it, and then they have an exam by which they evaluate that and say, Where, how have you learned this? Do you have mastery of it? Or do you have average understanding? Or are you just failing? You don't understand the concept at all. right? So we grade that. So we're often averse to doing that in, in our Christian life, in our spiritual life, because we, we don't want to be legalistic. I get that. But at the same point, we want to understand the growth process and say, hey, wh- self-examination is where am I at? Where am I going? What am I, 
working on? What's the next step? Instead of just this fog of, I know I go to church on Sunday, I know I should kind of read my Bible, but I don't really have any direction or know where that's going. That I, you know, as you could probably tell, I struggle with that kind of vagueness. I need a, and maybe this is part of being male, but I need something I'm working toward. I can't just float around and I'm working toward something. So any thoughts on how we might measure our growth or our spirituality? While you're thinking on that, let me read you. I have Ryle's book on holiness. If you haven't read it, uh, you can ask forgiveness later and get it and read it. It's, it's just, Ryle does such a good job on this topic. But on the subject of growth, he lists marks of religious growth. I want to read these to you. Because it, I want you to think about it in your own mind so I can build from there. But he says, increased humility. That's the first mark. Right? How often do we spend a lot of time just thinking about our, our humility? We, we need to spend a little more time there. Increased faith and love towards the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Right, the increase. Right, we, we love the Lord Jesus Christ. But if I'm growing in that, that's increasing. Increased holiness of life and lifestyle. Right, it's growing. Increased spirituality of taste and mind. What are my appetites? Are they growing in desire for spiritual things? You know, when I think of that, the concept of that taste, you know, we often, at least in the, where I grew, the envi spiritual environment I grew up in, you know, you do your daily devotions. And that can be a, just a ritual that you go through. And I don't place a high priority on just the ritual of it. But how I diagnose it is if I'm not doing that, why not? You understand what I mean by that? Just sitting down and opening the Bible doesn't give you like these brownie points and you're checking boxes. But there's, it tells me something about my soul if I don't desire to do that. Does that make sense? And so it, it, it's, a, it's an indicator that something's not right with my appetite if I'm not desiring to sit down and to read the scriptures, pray, do spiritual disciplines. It's an indicator. And so, I have to then say, well, what else do I want? What, what is stealing that? What do I think will make me happy? Or what do I think is, you know, important? You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, when Pilgrim, and I can't remember who it was, the other guy, at the time, Faithful maybe, when they went into Vanity Fair, do you remember what they got arrested for? There was a particular thing they got arrested for that you'd look at and you'd say, well, you can't arrest somebody for that because they weren't interested in buying anything there. They had no appetite for what they were selling and it offended them. And they said, who, who do you, th you're not, you won't buy anything? They had no appetite 
for what was going on in Vanity Fair. All the goods that they were selling, they didn't buy them, and so they arrested them because they had no desire for those things. So our appetites and what we desire is an indicator of, right, we know this when it comes to a diet, right, that if you, your stomach turns at the thought of a green vegetable, and that's just more than your mind can, you have, you, you eat it and it just tastes like terrible, bland and, and green, and there's, green has a taste, right? But you need cotton candy, and you need that buzz and that jolt of, whoo, now, now I got, you know, some sugar, and it's, you understand what I mean? That our appetite, and when you have somebody who's on cotton candy and you offer them a vegetable, they're like, who eats that stuff? Like, I'm not eating that. You understand what I mean? So we understand the concept of an appetite. The same thing applies to us spiritually. What is my appetite for spiritual things? Is it growing? Or is it waning? You know, where's, where's the, where am I at? An ability to measure that. Uh, another, he says, is charity. Am I growing in that? Another is increased zeal and diligence. Is that growing or waning? You know, it's not just, I realize there's aspects of the Christian life that ebb and flow, and that's, but having an ability to say an accurate annual checkup or monthly checkup or daily, this is really what the, the Lord's Day is, right? Is an opportunity to separate from all the stuff and to do self-examination and understand where am I taking ownership of my spiritual life for which my eternal soul is dependent on, of where I'm at with God and, and, and growing in that. And coming to that full assurance of faith. So as we look at these, I'm probably going to move through them fairly quickly and just probably make passing comments about each of these. There's seven of them, right? Which probably doesn't surprise us, right? That the scripture is just like threes and sevens. Seven is completion. And so here's a starting from faith. Here's some things to add. And we know that charity, according to Colossians, is the bond of perfectness or completeness. And that's the end. Ryle says in another place, a religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. Right? This is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That costs some things. There's effort and there's mutual affection that is in that. Our confession under sanctification says sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth the remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth, I, I highlighted this, a continual and irreconcilable war. We are in a constant war. And it's a spiritual war. Galatians says the, the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and they're just a constant. I don't know about you, I get tired of that. Like, could you just stop for a minute? The flesh, actually the confession quotes that, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And then it goes on to describe that war. 
that we need the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ. The regenerate part overcomes, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing on after a heavenly life. And it goes on to say a lot more, but you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian gets through the, the gate and they're teaching him some concepts that he's going to need on his journey. And I can't remember the, is it the House of Interpreter? I can't remember, there's several places he goes. But you remember the, the one picture where they take him in and they show him this fire. And there's a hearth or a fireplace, or, you know, I can't remember exactly how it describes it back in that time, but there's a fire. And it's a mystery because you see the enemy throwing water on the fire, but the fire's not going out. And it's a mystery, and, he's, and they're explaining it to him, and, and he's looking at this like, how, with that guy dumping buckets of water on it, is that fire not going out? And you remember what they do? They, they take him around the other side, and they show him that there's a, a man pouring oil and stoking that fire. Right? That the Lord Jesus Christ is supplying grace to keep that regenerating work alive. And though the enemy is dumping water on it, he's, it isn't going out because he's still supplying his spirit to continue to keep that fire going. And so there's, it's teaching them that you're going to feel this tension in your life and to be aware of it and understand it, to appreciate the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ continuing in our life. And so we want to be diligent to cultivate, take responsibility for our spiritual life. That, that my growth in grace is a primary focus, constant attention to how am I growing and how am I doing, instead of negligence, instead of just, right? And you remember when we talked about Peter in the garden, do you remember how that transpired from there? of Jesus takes them up into the Garden of Gethsemane, separates Peter, James, and John to go pray. They just had partaken of what? The Lord's Supper. Now you would think as far as the means of grace that Peter would have been on a spiritual high. You just took the Lord's Supper with Christ incarnate and the apostles. You sang a hymn and you're out in a prayer meeting with Christ in the flesh. Right? I mean, you'd think, man, I'm at a high here. And how did they respond to that? Fell asleep. So the means of grace were there, and Peter just, right? And Christ was gracious. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And learning that, and, and it's easy to get weary in the journey and say, I think I've had about enough of this. I had a particular point in my life after a, eight years of ministry in a church and the discouragements that come with that. And I remember a point in my life, and I was kind of not doing the best. I wasn't in gross sin or anything, but I, uh, I just said, like Peter, I'm going fishing. 
it started to kind of disturb my wife because she's like, uh-oh, I've, I've seen, you know, this, this isn't a good trajectory here. And so she was pressing me, I haven't seen you read your Bible this week. And I made a statement that I would not advocate for, I know enough about the Bible, I don't need to just sit down, you know, my devotions. And so a lot of these concepts that I'm talking about of my appetite was just, I just want to go fishing. <laughs> just want to go out and hang a worm over the side of the boat and just drift around and, you know, maybe catch something. And I realized that I probably have never been under more opposition struggle than I was at that point. That you just the discouragement and all manner of things that feed into that, and just thinking, yeah, I'm just gonna ride this. I'm gonna just coast for a little bit. Yeah, you know, I've been laying the hand of the plow for eight years on this, and now I'm just gonna coast on what I already know. And you guys know what happens when you do that in your spiritual life. It's not diligence; it's negligence, and it doesn't. You coast for about three days. <laughs> And then things start to come unhinged and falling apart. And then it's, okay, yeah, I need to work and get back to. So as we look at these, the, the concept of diligence, I, I think of a, a pitcher in baseball or an athlete that have all the natural ability in the world. But they don't just rely on everybody who's a pitcher who's drafted and is in Major League Baseball, whether minor leagues, or can throw the ball 95 miles an hour or 90-plus miles an hour. They all can. You don't even get it noticed if you don't. But what do they have to do to be effective? They have to add to their repertoire. They have to add a curveball. They have to add a changeup. They have to add, and they... And if you watch baseball, they, they evaluate. I don't know how they came up with the scale, but it's 1 to 9. I don't know how they didn't go 1 to 10. But they evaluate a pitcher's pitches on a scale of 1 to 9. So his fastball could be a 7. His curveball could be a 4. His changeup could be a 6. Right? But they evaluate. This is why Verlander, when he was with the Tigers, his, his fastball was a 9. His slider or curveball was an 8, and his changeup was an 8, right? So there's reasons why they are as effective as they are. And so when a pitcher only has a fastball, you go to the minor leagues until you can add another piece to your repertoire because you can't live on just a fastball. You can throw it 90 miles an hour, and it'll go out 110, right? And they'll just sit there and do it. You're not going to blow it by them like you have your whole life. And I say that because that is the essence of diligence, and they have to work at perfecting that pitch to work at a major league level, right? You can't just, oh, I have a curveball. Everybody sees it coming, and you flop that up there, and, it, you know, you, you can hurt your neck watching it go out of the park. And so when Peter is talking about adding it, he's not just saying, okay, yeah, you... You know, you did that yesterday. You, you, that was virtuous of you. That was a good thing. Or you read that book. That was there's some knowledge. He's saying add it to the point that that's part of your repertoire. That that's part of your spiritual 
armor, if you will, or your identity, you, you have added it. Does that make sense? It's not just you flirt with it, throw it out once and not in a difficult situation. You know, I have a curveball, I just can't throw it in the ninth inning. Right? Because it'll get hit. That we want to diligently add these things so that they're part of our character. They're part of our identity. So as we look at them just quickly, let me give you Webster's definition of diligence. Steady application, constant effort to accomplish what is undertaken. Right? I like to start things. You know what I mean by that? And work at it for about 30 minutes, and then I'm ready for something else. But diligence is staying right at it. I have a... I, we bought our house and there was a big indention in the front yard where they had something growing but it died. And so we needed to fill it in with dirt. So I went and got a truck load of black dirt topsoil and was going to shovel this in. And my 10-year-old says, Dad, would you, would you pay me to do that? I said, absolutely, absolutely. So that the two, there's a 10 and 11, now I think they're 11 and 12, are, they're going to do this and they know dad might pay them. They say might because dad's you know, kind of slippery sometimes. And so after about 15 minutes, the older brother is like, dad, I think when I grow up, I want a job at an office. <laughs> but the younger brother is like, he sees dollar signs. And so he's, I mean, if this is summer, so it's 85 degrees out, and he's out there, shove, one shovel at a time. And I thought, oh, he's got it. I'll just go inside, and we'll see how this goes. And, he, and that bugger come in about two hours later, beat-faced, red, dirt all over him. All right, Dad, got that truck emptied, ready for the next one. And I'm thinking, God bless you, my son. And so I went and loaded up three more yards of black dirt, and he's back out there. And the other siblings would want to come help. No, I got this, you know. And just shovel after shovel after three yards may not sound like a lot, but it's it's a lot, especially when you're ten. And then he gets done, and he comes to dad, and he says, uh, "I said, all right, let's let's balance the accounts here. How much how much do I owe you?" And he wasn't expecting me to, dad doesn't give too many decisions for, you know, where they get a voice. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I said, well, what do you think that work was worth? What's your, what value do you put on it? And he's real sheepish. I don't know, like $10? I said, that sounds like a good deal. I said, I was thinking more like 50 He's like, yeah, I like that a lot better, right? So I give him $50, and it was seconds before the brothers <laughs> are coming out of the room. We, Joab just got $50. What, what do we get? And I said, well, how long do you think you worked on that? And then the head just, well, maybe 15 minutes? How long did Joab work on that? 
and lower. <laughs> I said, sorry, you didn't earn anything. I fed you this week. That's you know why they probably are scarred from what dad's going to pay. And they left, and there was tears. If I'd only known that that's how this was going to go down. Right? Can you make the connection to this in our spiritual life? Yeah, you were given talents, and what did you do with them? Well, I buried it. I didn't cultivate anything with that. Well, take it to him and give it to the other one. It's trying to, you know, this is the problem when you have a dad who's a preacher, is everything comes back to, you know, I know, you're going to say. So, constant attention, diligence, exertion of body or mind without unnecessary delay or sloth. They could go to the Pilgrim's Progress, remember where he fought, he gets tired, climbing hill difficulty, just going to sit down and take a quick break, right? Falls asleep, and what happens? His scroll falls out of his pocket, his assurance of salvation, and he gets up and, oh, it's, now it's dark. I better hurry. Gets to the top of the hill, whoo, feels for his scroll. Oh, guess what he needs to do now? Turn around and go back down the hill, find the scroll, turn around and go back up the hill, all the extra work to get that assurance to go on and continue on in his journey. Webster, the 1828, even quotes 2 Peter 1 under the definition of diligence as, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. We use the term in society, due diligence. What is due? Well, how much diligence should you give considering you're getting ready to make a $200,000 decision? Do, your, do the diligence that would correspond to the level of that decision. Okay? So what would due diligence be for your eternal soul? What would be the appropriate level of diligence? Because I'm, I'm not a detail person. So I think, ah, close enough, right? I, when I get to decisions, I kind of have a sense, but I don't like to get into the weeds and read every line of the contract and every sentence until you have a few bad experiences where they pull out just this random phrase in the fine print and say, oh, well, there it is. Should have read that. Should have known that, right? And so how much diligence is due in giving attention to our spiritual life? Everything. <laughs> this is everything. This is everything in comparison to what would distract from that diligence. What are those things worth? Really nothing. Just vapor. And so as we're approaching our spiritual life, I have a, a saying I'm trying to like drill into my kids. Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything. That's not anything profound, is it? Like there's nothing that you, when you put them on the scales, I mean, is it even close? But then the second line is, He's not only more, worth more than anything, He's worth more than everything. 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 
all of everything, the entire world, if you, if you gave it all, who would be more valuable? He's the creator, right? He made everything. So how do I live that reality? That he's not just more valuable than any one thing. He's more valuable than the whole enchilada, everything combined. And to be living that out in a society that sees him as worthless. As nothing. Irrelevant. What does he have to bring to this? What does he have to bring? Everything. So, the time of self-examination, giving diligence to your spiritual growth. Yours. This is my garden. This is my life that God has given me to steward. We're obviously not going to get into all seven of these, but diligently add virtue. Moral excellence. Meaning, this is why I think there's a progression here, and I'm going to just take you through the progression in five minutes. When you're converted, instantly, there are things that you know that is not consistent with the Christian life. Right? You don't, even, you don't even need to know where that's at in the Bible. You just know there's certain lifestyle behavior that you say, I'm a Christian, I can't do that. That's virtue. That's just knowing this is not consistent with that life. What's next? Knowledge. But now you don't really know a lot. Now I need to know more things, right? Not just getting stuck on, I don't do these illegal things, right? Now, what does God have to say about every part of my life? Knowledge. Diligently adding knowledge to know what is right and informing your conscience and your decision making. Well, now I know what to do, so what would be the logical, without even looking at the text, I know what to do. Now what? Temperance. i got to do it. Right? Not just a hearer of the word. Not just knowing what is right. Now I need to be a doer of the word. And I have to be temperate in balancing and tempering my desires and my affections according to the knowledge that I have. Because what happens when those get out of... What happens when you have high knowledge, low practice? What do we call that? What's that? Hypocrisy. Right? I know what's right. I just don't do it. Don't we love Christians like that? Who know what everybody else needs to be doing. You just don't do it yourself. Right? So diligence to add virtue, moral goodness and excellence knowledge of what God requires in every situation and part of life. Now temperance to do it. So if I'm tempering it, what would be the logical next thing I need to add? Patience or endurance. Keep doing it. Right? So now I want to add this curveball to my repertoire. I want to add this skill to playing the piano. or what It works in every discipline. And oh, now I know how that works. Now I have to practice it. But then I quit. 
Right? We were talking about this with the original languages. You can not know anything. You add the knowledge of, okay, now I learn it. Now I have to recite the paradigms and vocabulary. But what happens if you do that and then stop? It's gone. You have to endure and persist in it every day. You say, well, I don't want to do this every day. Exactly. Right? There's the struggle. And so, I have virtue, I gain knowledge, I temper it, now I'm persevering in it and enduring, and I had patience of every... There's one thing I've learned about language teachers. I call them machines. They're robots. Because they just, every day we do the same thing. And I do that for about four days, and I'm thinking, can we do something else? Right? Let me go dig somewhere else. Because I'm getting through the topsoil, I'm hitting clay, and I, I don't want to keep beating the shovel into that. I'd rather go somewhere else and dig. But they're robots because they just get that discipline down, and they're usually runners. I am not a runner. I always tell people, you see me running, you better run because something's chasing me. So what does the result of endurance and patience produce? What's the next one? Logically, without even looking at it. Godliness. How do you get to godliness? Working through, adding those things, and then you get to this level of spiritual growth, and you're conforming your life to the Scriptures, to the Spirit of God, and it's adding godliness. And now it's in every part of my life, and I'm... I'm trying to be diligent in that area. Well, then what does it go to from there? Is that the end? Just be godly. Brotherly kindness. Now you, there's other people involved. You get to go hang out in a, in a, in a flock. And other people do things that you're not going to like. And so I'm diligently, not just being kind, but I'm genuinely learning to love my brother. Right? Did Jesus say anything about that being a big deal? Right? And now, my spirituality is affecting how I treat other people. Consistently. Not just in a one-off. I mean, when they poke you. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, when, when Baptists pat you on the back, they're feeling for the soft spot. Where to stick the knife in. That's a little cynical, but when I have a bad day, that's right. And so then you're kind to the brethren. Well, where else would we need to go from there? Well, charity is another step. That's to your enemy. Right? You don't have to be charitable to kind people. That's why when you read Colossians 3, when it talks about charity being the bond of perfectness, it talks about long-suffering, <laughs> patience, because when they're not being charitable, right, I reciprocate with blessing those that curse me, being kind to those that despitefully use me and persecute, that you may be like your father. If those things are in you and abound, that is a growth process. So my challenge to you this morning is to say, okay, where am I at in this process? Let's knock the dust away. Where do I need to tap down the nails and kind of refresh this area? 
And where have I just mailed it in and I'm coasting? All right, let me pray.